So again, I'm very, very pleased to be with the Sangha. And let me just invite people, if you, um, if it works for you to have your video on, uh, I would invite that. I, I love to be able to see people as I'm uh, speaking and, and, and in a way teaching and communicating. So if that works for you, I know some may have uh, bandwidth issues, but if that works, that, that's great. The theme I want to explore, which I think I think you, those of you who've uh, read the website know, is um, a theme about how we relate to the uh, challenges related to what's happening in the world. Um, the, so the, the the theme is ten ways of practicing skillfully with the challenges of our world, and the theme actually came out of. Uh, a back and forth with members of the White Heron Sangha, and I had been exploring territory similar to this, and we went back and forth, and the theme came out of uh, our, our dialogue, our dialogue uh, through emails particularly, that it might be very helpful to say, how do we relate to all that's happening in the world? and connect it with our practice. So that, that is the theme, 10 ways of practicing skillfully with the challenges of our world. And, you know, I wanted just to name some of the things that are occurring, really just to name what we all know. You know, we have the recent uh, police killing of Tyree Nichols and uh, just today, I actually watched a video of Tyre Nichols uh, doing skateboarding, which is available. How many how many people have seen that? You know, it's quite quite uh, it's, it's um, painful and touching to watch. You know, the just the joy of uh, him skateboarding, and we have also an epidemic of mass shootings. We have. Uh, you know, the earthquake in Turkey and Syria with now, I think, over 46,000 people dead. And most of us are here in California, and we know that uh, larger earthquakes are part of our future. You know, and, and uh, we have the ongoing war in Ukraine. I read that, that uh, there were... Um, I think uh, uh, dossiers for 60,000 war crimes committed. Unimaginable, right? We have other wars and violence going on and that get less attention, maybe places like Yemen or Burma or Myanmar. We have the, uh, the climate crisis going on without the major government seeming to do what is really necessary for, for different reasons. And we have related to that very much in our country, we have polarization, you know, and I, you know, one of the recent indications of the kind of the crisis of democracy that's happening, which I think many of us are, or maybe almost all of us are very aware of, you know, I, w I was aware during the uh, State of the Union speech of how uh, actually some of the Republican members of Congress actually broke the rules of the um, 
Congress for decorum and people uh, people made comments about uh, they shouted liar during the talk, which is actually against the rules, but the rules have to be enforced by the uh, Speaker of the House who chose not to. Right? And so one, um, you know, one political scientist um, uh, said this after the State of the Union, in old established democracies, when you see an increase in this type of behavior, it is usually symptomatic of a breakdown of democratic norms. So we know that's part of it also. It's a lot. It's a lot to hold. How do we hold that with our practice? How do we maintain what in Buddhist teachings is called wise view or right view um, in relationship to the pain of the world, the challenges of the world? How do we respond skillfully uh, in our own ways to what's happening in the world? How do we get caught ourselves in unskillful views and in unskillful uh, reactions? How do we ourselves get caught in, in, in these ways? And so I wanted to give uh, 10 ways of answering that, those questions, 10 ways of responding. And I should say that each of these probably could be the focus of a week or a month or six months that, that I'll be naming things. And what I'll be inviting is to uh, invite each of us to ask, you know, which of these resonate with me? Which of these uh, speak to me or might lead to more clarity? or more intentionality in my own, my own responses. And I also want to say that uh, uh, I'm giving this talk partly for myself. Sometimes I give talks and I say to myself, you should listen to what this guy is saying, <laughs> right? And this is one of those talks, right? That this is, uh, you know, being in this uh, teaching role, certain things come through, but it's very much a matter of that I'm, uh, you know, I'm talking to myself as well as everyone else. So, number one, you know, I'll give ten of these. Number one, ground in wise view. Ground in what sometimes is called right view. And this is, this is coming from Buddhist tradition. We can ask what is wise view or what is right view, you know. The, the word that's translated as right or wise is sama, and it's probably a better translation to call it mature or developed or even perfected view. So this is mature vision of ourselves and of the world. And this is, this is what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago about right view. What is right view? Knowledge with regard, with regard to dukkha, knowledge with regard to the origination of dukkha, knowledge with regard to the cessation of dukkha, knowledge with regard to the way of practice leading to the cessation of dukkha. This is called right view. And probably most of us recognize that as giving a reference to the Four Noble Truths. And the... Uh, 
So the, the right wise view or right view is being able to know these four truths and see the world in this way. Now, I think those who, um, I think I've taught on this at San Luis Obispo, the word dukkha, I didn't translate dukkha. The word dukkha is usually translated as suffering, which I think can be very confusing when we look to what the core aim of our practice is. And probably some of you know that I like to translate dukkha as reactivity and say that the aim of our practice is non-reactivity. And this is confusing because, uh, can be confusing because in the teachings of the Buddha, it being an oral tradition, there wasn't consistency about how he used the word dukkha. He talked about the end of dukkha, and that's the crucial phrase. Our practice aims to come to the end of dukkha, but what is dukkha? I'm going to say it's reactivity. And, but when you look to the text, the Buddha gave at least four different understandings of dukkha, the first three of which don't make any sense of the end of dukkha. Uh, the first meaning is that dukkha is uh, what's painful. And this is why it's usually translated as suffering. These are, you know, in passages like, uh, what is dukkha? Dukkha is old age. Dukkha is illness. Dukkha is dying and so forth. But that never ends. That's there as long as we're a human being and alive. So that doesn't help us make sense of the end of dukkha in a very direct way. And there are other meanings of uh, dukkha that also don't make sense. Another meaning of dukkha is that whatever is now pleasant will, because of impermanence, become unpleasant. But that doesn't ever change either. And so what I found is that the teaching that makes best sense of this really comes from... Uh, the teaching on dependent origination. I won't go into much detail here. Most of us probably know this teaching that says that there is, um, in contact with every sense experience, there is uh, a feeling tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. When we're not aware, not mindful, we tend with a pleasant feeling tone to go automatically to wanting and grasping. I'm going to say that's one form of reactivity. And we go very automatically with the unpleasant to not wanting and pushing away. And we can do that in a hundred different ways. I can tense around the unpleasant physically. I can um, be judgmental. I can be reactive towards what someone says to me that I didn't like. And I'm going to say that those forms of grasping and pushing away in a habitual, automatic, often unconscious way, those are the two forms of reactivity. And that's what wise view is pointing to as the aim of our practice, to come to non-reactivity. And for me, it's a very, this is a very simple way of talking about the core of our practice. And everything leads to this. This is the heart of 2,600 years of tradition, very simple, very understandable to come to the point where we don't compulsively, reactively grasp after the pleasant or compulsively push away the unpleasant. Now, very crucial here, and I'll come back to this, is that we can 
be with what's unpleasant and choose to end it. You know, a typical example would be the, let's say, injustice. This isn't about being passive, it's, but it's about being non-compulsive, non-reactive. So the question would be, how can I respond to injustice or respond to something in a relationship and deal with something that's painful or difficult, but non-reactively? That's the key. So it's not about just being passive or letting injustice go or letting things that are not right go. Same thing with the pleasant. We can choose to have a second piece of cake. That's the good news in my talk. Okay, that we can have that second piece of cake. The key is, is it done compulsively in a grasping way? So that's, this is the extent of me giving a more, um, you know, involved unpacking of a teaching. I just, but I, I wanted to give that a little bit of depth because that is the heart of wise view is seeing how reactivity, you know, occurs in relationship to the pleasant or the unpleasant and seeing how so much of what we identify as the problems of the world are, we could say, ways of acting out reactively. Okay. And so that's, uh, you know, the, and, you know, one of the other teachings which expresses this, which I, I think you probably, most of us know, is the teaching of the two arrows, where the Buddha says, everyone at times has painful experiences. What distinguishes a non-practitioner from a skilled practitioner? He said, being, uh, having painful experiences is like being shot by an arrow. An unskilled practitioner or a non-practitioner will tend to shoot a second arrow as if, that, as if this would help get rid of the first arrow whereas a skilled practitioner learns not to do that. So the second arrow are all the forms of reactivity. That's a, that's a metaphor. So when I work with people, the most common guidance I give them, you've had something difficult, try not to shoot the second arrow. In other words, try to be with what's difficult and painful as much as possible without reactivity. And so we can actually see the world through the lens of right view. We can look at difficulties in society and see reactivity. We can look at conflicts, you know, and see reactivity. This can be the lens that we look through the world at or that we, that we use to see the world. Okay, that's number one. That's probably the longest I'll talk about each of them. Number two. Be aware of unskillful views in oneself and in the world. In other words, when, when are there views or opinions or positions that come out of reactivity? We want to see this in ourselves and see this in the world. See how there can be clinging to views. Very obvious on the political level. Uh, but we can do that too. We can cling to Buddhist views or spiritual views. And so we want to, the second guideline is to really, really when you are with others 
and looking even at the news, be, look through this lens of right view and see when are their unskillful views. So this can help us, I think, ourselves to be less reactive because we can see through this lens. We can know, and this can also bring about some compassion because we can see how often unskillful views are driven by, by pain. You know, it's one of the main things that I have found working with the judgmental mind. A lot of our being judgmental comes out of unacknowledged or unprocessed pain. You know, someone did something I didn't like, I can be judgmental for the next two weeks, partly because I'm not quite able to touch the pain of what happened. Often, and, and one of the practices we do with the judgmental mind is to learn how to touch the pain, which tends often to release the judgmental quality. We can see how unskillful views uh, come out of reactivity, grasping and pushing away. One of the interesting things I found in teaching, I've been t teaching a six-week course also on Buddhist practice and transforming racism for New York Insight, and I've, we've looked a lot at history. And one of the things I found that uh, was a little bit unexpected, or fairly unexpected, when we actually looked to the actual history of where uh, racism comes from, it doesn't primarily come out of hatred. It primarily comes out of greed. You know, that there was basically, you look to the early history in what's now the United States in the 17th century, and the very concepts of white and black and race came out of a divide-and-conquer strategy by the ruling elites. In other words, grasping for political power and economic wealth. And that led, over the next period of time, to developing a whole edifice of racism. But racism wasn't behind slavery. Slavery was an economic arrangement. I, that's pretty, you know, that's not what we usually think of when we think of this. Of course, the, the hatred of racism then became established over the centuries. You know, it's very interesting. Or to see even that the large level of death and destruction in Turkey was, you know, we could say was a byproduct of greed. You know, of, of all the uh, contractors not following the building codes, right? You know, you know, partly from the government not overseeing it, partly from the contractors. So that second one is be aware of unskillful views and their role really in, in the world. Thirdly, remember the vision of awakening. Remember this vision of what we could call non-reactivity, which is kind of a down-to-earth term. We could be, you know, kind of maybe more inspiring and use terms like love or freedom or compassion or wisdom or awakening. That um, this is our aim. This is the aim of our practice. And so remembering that intention for awakening in the context of being with the challenges of the world. You know, we can think of Dr. King's 
statement, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it points towards justice, right? It's a faith in love and freedom and awakening being our deepest nature. This is really crucial because obviously being with the pain and challenges of the world can lead one to despair or loss of hope or thinking that our basic nature is more negative, right? How many can relate to that sometimes coming up when you just relate to the, the world, right? This is from the Dhammapada. Those who fully cultivate the factors of awakening, give up grasping, enjoy non-clinging, are luminous and completely liberated in this life. And so we want to find ways, even in our daily lives, of touching awakening, of finding ways that uh, we can have that sense of awakening, whether it's an experience of loving kindness or compassion, or just the mind being really clear and open and being with the sunset with full awareness. Having those moments of awakening is really, really crucial. So touch awakening and know that you're touching it, even if it's for a short time. Number four is, again, in relation to the challenges of the world, remember the vision of awakening, not just for oneself, but for everyone, for all beings. Remember the vision of metta, loving kindness, for all beings. Remember, you can remember the lines from the Metta Sutta. Read the newspaper and think of the line from the Metta Sutta, radiating kindness over the entire world, upwards to the skies and downwards to the depths, outward and unbounded. Or whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, those born and to be born, may all beings be at ease. Or again, I've been thinking a lot about the parallels between Buddhist practice and uh, the life and work of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I, I gave a talk at our recent uh, Metta, or Loving Kindness Retreat at Spirit Rock, on his birthday, where I particularly looked at the connections between loving-kindness practice and wisdom practice and the life and work of Dr. King. So again, uh, for Dr. King, there is a sense that the real aim is, we could say, a love for all beings, much like metta. He says the end is reconciliation. The end is redemption. The end is the creation of the beloved community. It is this type of spirit and this type of love that can transform opposers into friends. It is this love which will bring about miracles in the hearts of human beings. So he was saying that right in the midst of being very much in touch with the pain of the world, right? How can you keep that perspective? Not easy. How can you have a kind heart? For me, I think a core practice, in, in addition to metta and compassion, is manifesting empathy. Can we have empathy with our opponents? Try to sense where they're coming from. Even people on the other side of the divide. Can I listen deeply to others? 
You know, I think that empathy is a core practice. I once did a training with a, a trainer, an African-American trainer named David Kemp, whose approach to transforming racism was for people to cultivate empathy and have extended discussions or having to have discussions in their extended family about, um, particularly about racism. And he thought that if one could do this with empathy, one doesn't need to have a particular politi political position to want racism to end. And so this was his approach. And the, the core was empathy. We could talk again about empathy, deep listening. This is from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh on deep listening. Deep listening is the foundation of skillful speech. If we cannot listen mindfully, we cannot practice skillful speech. No matter what we say, it will not be mindful because we will be speaking only our own ideas and not in response to the other person. In the Lotus Sutra, we are advised to look and listen with the eyes of compassion. Compassionate listening brings about healing. It's a way of bringing the kind heart into interactions. So number five, be with the pain of the world in one's life, holding it with compassion. It's not, not so easy, but we know from our own meditation practice that when we can be present and mindful of our own pain, compassion arises when, it, when, the, when the pain is in the workable area, uh, range. So can we be sometimes with the news as a mindfulness practice? Can I have a little ritual where I bring mindfulness to five minutes of the news? I've done retreats which were involved with socially engaged practice where we listen to the news in the morning as a, as a practice. What would that be like? I think it's also important to uh, not listen too much to the news. Does anyone listen too much to the news? Okay, that's, you know, that, that's something that's really crucial to know how much we're just being addicted to the news and how much is actually helpful just to be informed. Because being with the news can be numbing or lead us to, lead us to um, despair even. I think it's actually could be helpful to do periodically different rituals that help us hold the pain. And I, I've worked with uh, the practices from Joanna Macy for, for a lot of years. And some of you know the truth mandala. There are practices that open up in a group setting to the pain that we have. And these have been really important for me in my own, in my own life. I think when I first trained with Joanna, was over 30 years ago. It was. It was it happened to be the weekend right after the first Gulf War. And I had been doing work with Buddhist Peace Fellowship, quite active. We had been having different kinds of events. And after the bombing started, I felt numb. And I felt like I couldn't act. Something was just, it was too much. And that can be a very common way that we relate to the world and the pain of the world. And we did uh, a weekend of practice 
And one of the practices was called the Truth Mandala, where we're together and we go into a circle. And we did this with 70 people for about an hour and a half, going into a circle and just naming the pain that we're feeling. And it was it's a guided practice, so there actually are four places where we can go. I think one is for anger, one for sadness, one for confusion, one for fear. And there's a place in the middle of it, something else. And people would go into this and just speak what was there for them, be heard by others. I did this, and I found that that practice touched the pain that I had in relation to the world, which is not easy to touch. And something was released, and after that, I was able to act. I had I was I was numb and somewhat paralyzed up until that touching of the the pain. And I've used this practice when I've done I've done uh, three retreats, uh, three basically four or five day retreats related to uh, Buddhist practice and transforming racism. And at one of these, we did a we did this ritual. Uh, in the midst of the retreat. And we had people touching pain. We had people who were, I did this in the South, actually. And we had people who, one person whose ancestors were slave owners, another who, who was uh, had um, ancestors who had been in the Confederate Army. And they were able to touch something in the group setting, which wasn't able to be touched otherwise. And something gets released. And we can do this maybe in our own way, maybe just with uh, one or two people, but can really... So that's, that's something where we need to do things together. Number six, know how to resolve differences and conflict in yourself and in your immediate relationships, and then bring that perspective into the larger world. So this is a big one. You know, one of the areas that, I mean, the world is very unskillful often at working with conflict, right? And working skillfully with conflict. Again, this could be uh, this could be something we look at for a day or a week. But the, the short guideline for working with conflict skillfully is to be able to get away from the kind of the reactive positions that people have and go with empathy into what really matters for each side or each person with empathy. And in my experience, having done a certain amount of mediation with people and looking at conflicts, I have deep confidence that every conflict, even the most severe, and I've done this some applying it to Israel-Palestine, for example, even the most severe conflict, when we do empathic practice and look for the deep, the deep... uh, values and what really deeply matters for the different sides, even with really extreme conflicts, let alone with ones that are easier, we can find uh, resolutions. We can find ways of working. And so how to do that just in one's daily life and then imagine and be skillful, learn to be skillful with conflict in daily life and then learn how to bring it out into uh, your relation to the world. Number seven. So I'm, re- I'm really, this is a lot, but just see what resonates with you. Maybe one or two of them do, and you follow those. Number seven, study and practice non-harming and non-violence 
at all levels of your life. Non-harming, which we find as the core of our ethical practice, is the basic way that we approach um, conflicts, issues, really uh, relationships, the larger world. And again, there's a very powerful parallel between the Buddhist teachings of non-harming and the uh, teachings from Gandhi and King particularly about nonviolence. That in addressing the issues of the world, we want to have the means be just as pure, to use King's language, as the ends. In other words, we want to end reactivity with ways of that are non-reactive. Not easy, but this is this is the formula, and this is what we can study. You know, that we can for for Dr. King, he talked about love being at the center of his movement. As we could talk about non-reactivity, non-harming being at the center of the movement. This is these are words from Dr. King. Love must be at the forefront of our movement if it's to be successful. We are speaking about understanding and goodwill towards all human beings, a creative, redemptive sort of, of love. And this is from Thich Nhat Hanh. Nonviolent action, born of the awareness of suffering and nurtured by love, is the most effective way to confront adversity. So let us study those who have really focused on non-harming, on non-violence. Number eight, Keep practicing all of this in daily life. Okay, that was number eight, not number ten. So we want to find ways to practice non-reactivity in our daily lives, practice non-harming, practice empathy. All of what I've mentioned can be practiced in, in our daily life. And again, I'm maybe suggesting take one or two of them, not all of them I've named, and practice empathy for a month, practice non-harming, focus on that. So you're seeing this could really be a curriculum for a six-month training, right? Or a six-month uh, group together. You know, so find ways of doing that. Practice deep listening. Practice skillful conflict work and so forth. What I have found is that the principles at the individual level and the relational level and the collective level are the same. That's why I've been really making connections between non-reactivity, empathy, deep listening, non-harming. The core principles for applying these at the individual level are the same as, as the application at the relational level and the uh, collective level. So we're getting there. Number nine, be aware of the multiple ways of responding to the pain and the issues of the world, number nine. And here again, I'm, in, I'm informed by Joanna Macy. She says that there are three aspects of the, in her language, the transformation towards a sustainable society. Number one, holding actions to prevent further damage. This is sort of traditional activism. Number two, look at the institutions, analyze them, and when necessary, develop alternative institutions. That could be alternative ways of education or healthcare, 
or parenting or education. And number three, learn to see the world in a different way, really at the heart of our practice. Gandhi had something very similar. He said there were three aspects of his program, you know, of his uh, program. There was nonviolent action to try to kick the British out, but have them leave as friends. There was what he called the constructive program, which was developing alternative institutions in India. And then there was the process of self-purification, the inner spiritual work. And so we can see all three of these and then see where you each, see where each of us is drawn. Am I more drawn to activism and preventing bad things from happening? Am I more drawn to uh, working at the community level or working with particular institutions? Am I more drawn to individual transformation? The key is seeing where one, one is drawn and seeing that all three are connected. That's really crucial. And then number 10, the last one, choose one or two fundamental social issues and be involved, and be involved in your own way. One process that can do this is something I, I have worked with several people where we went through a process, you know, one person would come to me and say, I want to be more involved. And so question number one, which issue? And I think of one person and she said, climate issues. And then I said, okay, how much time do you have? How much time do you want to devote? And she said, five hours a week, you know, and maybe for you it's two hours a week or five hours a month or whatever. She said, five hours a week. Okay. And then I said, okay, research, research several organizations where you could plug in. She did that. The next week she came back. I found where I want to work and she's been doing her five hours a week ever since. So really crucial is to find a way to act in the world. Uh, Angela Zarian, a great teacher, she said, action alleviates anxiety. So finding a way to act really changes things. I have found that in my, for myself. Having ways of action, even if they're small, can really let one feel connected. Or I was thinking of, I read something today from Greta Thunberg, and she said, she wants to act in a way so that she can say later, I did what I could during this existence. I'm sorry, I did what I could during this existential crisis when most people are just either looking away or too busy with their own lives. She said, I did, I did what I could. So let me finish. You know, I'm really inviting us to see where are we drawing. So let me finish with a story from Howard Thurman, the great activist and mystic. He was asked by a young man near the end of his life. He died in 1980. And he was asked, what should I do? And Howard Thurman said, don't ask what the world needs. Very strange answer for an activist. He says, rather ask what makes you come alive because what the world needs is people who have come alive.
So see what brings you alive and see what calls you. So let me invite us just now to sit for maybe a minute or so with what I've offered you and see how see what resonates with you. Maybe see if there are any questions you have or any sharing you want. Let's take a few moments of silence. So let me invite any, any reflections or questions or sharing of any kind that anyone has in, to relate, in relation to what was brought up. And if you have your video on, you, could, you can uh, just raise your hand. I can see everyone. Or if you, um, if you don't have your video on, you can do the uh, raised hand function. So anyone like to share anything? You can raise, just raise your hand. I can see people. Well, yeah, please. Uh, Kate, looks like. Hi, Donald. Thank you so much. Um, well, I found that to be, it was resonating, you know, very nicely. Uh, we've been talking about, you know, these kinds of things. We have a morning sit group and yeah. the last few days, you know, things have come up and uh, we have our engaged Buddhist group also so and i know for a fact that you know finding a way to kind of get involved and do do what you can yeah really is a powerful way to kind of you know it, it just it settles you it's like oh i i'm doing something i'm right. doing what i can right. it, it's just so helpful to do that and i just appreciate everything you said um and I hope I didn't use up all my talking time, but I'll stop. <laughs> no, so, Thank you. no, thanks, Kate. I think, you know, that point you make that, um, uh, you know, action alleviates anxiety. It also, just to know that one is acting and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't have to fit a model. Like I say, just see what calls one, maybe one issue. We can do something like that reflection process that I named uh, from the person I worked with. And, um, you know, sometimes it take, can take a little while, but just, you know, knowing that one is, you know, I don't know, doing something on the climate issue and you're putting in two or three hours a week, it makes a difference, you know, and because what would it be like if 20% uh, of the population did that? I think we'd be in a, a different place, right? You know, and there, there's research done that when, you know, when people are actively involved in a movement, things change. There's very interesting research done by social scientists about, you know, the level of involvement. Yeah. Um, please, looks like uh, Ali, is it? 
Yes. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. Um, I was very involved during the civil rights movement, and I'm really happy that you're um, uh, mentioning Dr. King. Uh, I was young and very impressionable, and yeah. some of the things he said were great. Uh, the last probably 30 years of my life, I've been very involved with caretaking of my mother and then my husband who passed. Yeah. And the practice that I've been doing is um, trying to come from love, the same love that I was offering them, um, being that way everywhere I was. Yeah. I, I didn't have extra time to actually be involved, but I really felt that by loving wherever I was, uh, driving my car or whatever, that um, I was doing something. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's and, and it's a, go ahead, Ellie. Sorry. It's it's a wonderful practice because it's it's very powerful of the the um, the different elements that you're talking about uh, are coming up when you're driving or you're in the grocery store, you're standing in line or whatever. So that's what I try to do is always flip my perspective toward loving the other or the yeah, yeah. situation. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. And, um, you know, I, I, I work with a lot of people who are very creative in bringing particularly uh, loving kindness practice into all many different aspects of daily life. You know, that the loving kindness practice, whether it's done with phrases or I like to teach a more energetic uh, body-based practice, the radiating metta, which probably many of you know where it radiates out and you learn to just to almost like be in a field of love or a field of radiating metta. And I have people I work with, I think of one person, she brings it into being a midwife and being in a hospital, you know, whatever, 40 hours a week. Another person, you know, I think of several others who do it with uh, child rearing or with, um, you know, just uh, many situations, several people do it in driving. Right. And so it's very amenable. And and then, of course, we want to see, oh, oh, I'm doing I'm doing my uh, radiating meta or my my bringing love in and then see what happens when there's something difficult or painful, maybe a conflict. Right. Can you still keep that intention going? And there's a lot of momentum when we've been doing it uh, during much of the day. Yeah. Yeah. So really a crucial way to to do this to bring all of what we're talking about into whatever we do not easy you know okay looks like uh susan please i was wondering if you could read that last quote again oh the one from uh, howard thurman yes please okay uh, actually i didn't uh, I, I have it from memory, so, okay. okay. Yeah, Howard Thurman was an African-American activist and uh, teacher, scholar, who uh, taught for many years at Boston University. I think he also taught at Howard University. And he came out to uh, the Bay Area and he set up the first interracial um, church community. And so he was very active and 
this young man came to him, I think 1972, he, Howard Thurman died in 1980, and asked him, what should I do? You know? And Howard Thurman's response, don't ask what the world needs, but ask what makes you come alive, because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Yeah, that really spoke to me. Um, and I'm, I'm, I just returned today from a conference um, up in the Pacific Northwest on end-of-life things. Oh, wow. and, um, and that's what makes me come alive, is talking about that issue and all the things around it and um, how powerful it is to be with 500 other people who share that, that um, energy, you know? Yeah. So along with your, what you were talking about, I was thinking, yeah, and there's sometimes it's just a couple people getting excited about something can really bring about a change. And That's also right. yeah. um, joining with others who feel that way as well. You don't have to see eye to eye on every little thing as became very clear during right. this conference, but right. to share a common interest in a topic I think is really, really wonderful and really enlivening. Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. So, you know, other language we might uh, use is just what is alive in oneself or what, you know, even in, in my talk just now, um, what was sparked? What had resonance? You know, I, I said a lot of things. I talked for, you know, almost uh, probably 40 minutes or so. But uh, and a lot of things, but was there, were there one or two things that really sparked? That's that's what we want to pay attention to, because those are the seeds that we can invite to grow, so to speak. Right. Yeah. Maybe time for one more if we want to. Do we typically finish on time, Stephen? Yeah. Let me see. Maybe one more. It looks like uh, Marcel, please. Thank you. Uh, one thing you touched on is that we teach what we most need to learn. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that Susan touched upon right now really is bringing me alive in some ways, like the end of life. So there's like an interesting play on words there. But uh, I've been in a phase of doing nothing and wondering what I will do if I, if I, whenever I grow up, if I ever grow up. But, uh, you know, turning 86 sometime in the next couple of months, obviously end of life is very close. At the same time, like I'm really not clear about what it is that I want to do or that uh, turns me on or that brings me alive. Yeah. And at the same time, it's like, this is what I feel drawn to at this point. Yeah. And I'm going to be in touch with you and mm -hmm. uh, possibly explore some options at this point. But uh, so I want to thank you. I want to thank you. And when you touched upon the Israel-Palestine issue, I also really resonated to that being of Palestinian background. Yeah. yeah. You're Jewish, and my husband was Jewish, and so anyway, so and I've been asked to participate in that. I was active in citizen diplomacy, but that's a chapter that's ended. 
um, that's not what I'm resonating to. So um, mindful of what has ended and also what keeps opening up. Yeah, thank you, Marcel. Very nice to see you again. <laughs> yeah, and yeah, there's a lot there in what you say that's really uh, helpful. I was thinking of, for me, because uh, I think, what was it, the last time I taught, was it on uh, doing and not doing for the, the Sangha, right? And I think I talked about how sometimes we need to simply get less busy to know what really is alive for us, right? Sometimes when we're busy, it's hard to know what's most alive. And so, the you know, finding ways sometimes to do nothing or, you know, we may take a vacation or do a retreat. You know, for me, when I do retreats, virtually always what is deeper comes more to the surface in terms of my motivation. So, you know, so, some, so finding the ways that we can be in, more in touch with what is really calling. You know, that, that's really, really crucial. So thank you, Marcel. And again, very, very good to see you again. And uh, yeah, so I think we're, we're at time, right? So uh, should we go to the dedication of merit, Stephen? Lead us in the dedication of merit uh, to close our session. Thank you. Yeah, yeah thank you. Thanks for all your help. Uh, let's close with two things. First... Let me just invite uh, a few moments to be present with whatever has some energy or aliveness for you. Maybe an intention coming out of our time together. See what's there. Take a minute or so with that. And then we'll close with the uh, dedication of merit. Very traditional practice, really about intention. And we remember that we practice not just for ourselves, but we very much practice for ourselves. That's really, we practice for ourselves, but not just for ourselves. And so we invite the benefits of our time together to be there for us, to be there for those in our own circles, and then to go beyond those circles towards all beings. May the benefits of our time together be there for all beings, knowing that we are part of all beings. Thank you kindly. Uh, I look forward to the next time to be in person with everyone in, in San Luis Obispo. And uh, 
until next time, and I'll, I'll end with my way that I greeted people. Maybe not all of you saw this, but I have found uh, my Zoom greeting and farewell goes like this. You can do it too. <laughs> okay. Bye-bye, everyone. And feel free to unmute if you like and, and just uh, say whatever you like. Thank you, Donald. Thank you so much. Thank you, Donald. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you, and thank, thank you, Kat, for the dialogue that led to the subject. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks to Christy and Stephen. Thank you. Thank you, Donald. You're welcome. Okay, good night. Bye. Bye-bye.